eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Episode 336 of the Bowery Boys, Hearst, Pulitzer, and the War on Newspaper Row. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And welcome to our second installment of our two-part series on the war between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, a conflict that played out daily in the 1890s on the pages of the nation's two largest newspapers. For this episode, we'll be heading back down to Newspaper Row, uh, that stretch of Park Row near the base of the Brooklyn Bridge, just across from City Hall, where most of the city's major newspapers were headquartered in the 1890s. These included two newspapers that are the subject of today's show. The New York World, owned by Pulitzer, and the New York Journal, owned by Hearst. And while all the newspapers in New York, of course, were competing for readers, the competition between these two papers in particular was so intense that it's often referred to as an all-out war. Now, in part one of this two-part series, we discussed the development of both of these papers and some of the sensational tactics that they used to attract readers. Today, we're going to go to war with them. And unfortunately, by that, I mean we're literally going to a war. The Spanish-American War. And they get into some fights with some newsies, too. Mm. We're going to get into that, of course. But also, what happened to Pulitzer and Hearst in the 20th century? And what happened to their newspapers? Newspapers that were so influential during the Gilded Age. So join us as we cover the story of Hearst, Pulitzer, and the war on Newspaper Row. So, Tom, before diving into international intrigue Mm -hmm. and uh, maritime disasters Mm. that would change American history, why don't we give a little recap to our part one of our show from last week, where we kind of set up the battle between these two publishers. Yes. In fact, why don't we do, Greg, a joint situate, okay? Sure. (laughs) If you haven't listened to part one of this series uh, released last week, You might want to listen to that one first. But as a reminder, we met two men who moved to New York during the second half of the 19th century, and each of them bought struggling newspapers and turned them into media powerhouses. Those two men are Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Now, these two men had some similarities, uh, but they were also quite different. Joseph Pulitzer was a Jewish immigrant who came to the U.S. from Southeast Hungary as a teenager during the 1860s. He fought in the Civil War in the Union Army. He wound up broke after the war, moved from New York City to St. Louis, where he worked his way up through, you know, intellectual circles to become a reporter for a German-language newspaper. While in St. Louis, he also entered politics and then managed to buy and merge two papers together to form the St. Louis 
Post-Dispatch, a paper that's still around today, and a paper that in which he, he used a new kind of crusading and sensational style of journalism, of reporting, that made the Post-Dispatch a huge commercial success. So having made that fortune, then he moved with his family on to New York, where in 1883, he bought the failing New York world and employed those same sensational reporting tactics, taking it from a circulation of 15,000 a day uh, to more than 300,000 a day by 1890. And in that year, in 1890, he also opened the New York World Building down on Newspaper Row, a, a building which stood 20 stories tall and was the world's tallest office tower for five years. But despite all of that success, all was not well with Joseph Pulitzer. He had a rather nervous disposition. Uh, he was suffering debilitating health problems, including with his eyesight. He was losing his ability to see. And into this whole scene, then, in 1895, came another newspaper man from out west, William Randolph Hearst. So Hearst was the wealthy son of a California miner who had risen in his father's footsteps to helm the San Francisco Examiner newspaper, building its circulation using many of the same tricks that Pulitzer had used in St. Louis. He moved to New York in 1895 to get into the newspaper game, and Pulitzer would not know what hit him here. Uh, Hearst bought the New York Journal in that year, in 1895, and lowered the price to just one cent, creating a robust and incredibly exciting newspaper for New Yorkers to read, which rivaled all those more expensive newspapers, including, of course, Pulitzer's. And he would use some crafty, nefarious tricks to get ahead in the newspaper game here. For instance, he stole away many of Pulitzer's employees, including a cartoonist named Richard Outkow, who produced America's first comic strip for Pulitzer's paper for the world um, with a character named The Yellow Kid. So by 1896, both the world and the journal here were running versions of The Yellow Kid. And it's because of this that these two papers were then referred to as The Yellows among the readers and newsies of New York City. And so it's from that name that we get the phrase yellow journalism, which describes what these two publishers are doing, these, this radical, flamboyant, and often untruthful nature of the paper of the newspaper's reporting. So then those are our two protagonists. That's sort of where we left it last week. But now I'm going to take us to a maritime disaster that happened on February 15th, 1898, in a location about 1300 miles south of New York in Havana, Cuba. That night, February 15th, 1898, at 9:40 p.m., an American battleship the USS Maine, which was docked in Havana's harbor, suddenly exploded and sank, killing 250 men on board. This was a terrible disaster, and who's responsible for this tragedy? Well, it wasn't clear, and President McKinley at the time cautioned Americans um, from jumping to any conclusions. Although readers of the journal and of the world were certainly encouraged, shall we say, in the following days, to place the blame squarely on Spain. Tom, I think before we just dive into the newspaper's reaction, high, like hyperbolic reactions here to this terrible tragedy, mm -hmm. I think if we could spend a few minutes kind of setting up what this conflict was even about, and why was there a U.S. battleship there in the first place? Well, Cuba in the 1890s was an island in revolt against Spain. Spain, which was a country that had been ruling the island, more or less, since the early 1500s. However, throughout the 19th century, rebel forces in Cuba, uh, liberation fighters, had been fighting for the island's independence from Spain. So then by the 1890s, these rebels were, they were gaining momentum in this fight for independence, and Spain, in return, was cracking down on them, and, and they sent thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers 
to the island to protect their authority over the island. And the result was countless skirmishes and attacks, um, arrests and imprisonments of rebels, and many deaths on both sides. Meanwhile, here in New York, the city was watching this conflict very, very closely, of course. Mm -hmm. In fact, the world and the journal, we'll get to, you know, how they handle this in more in depth later, but they were actually very much on the side of the Cuban resistance here. And were even at this time were printing stories from the Cuban perspective. You know, keep in mind New York has a lot of economic connection with Cuba. And the city is actually, even by this time, is a center for Cuban political resistance. So there's a lot of back and forth between New York and Cuba. And many New Yorkers were very sympathetic to their struggle for independence. And I think that the the journal and the world saw a business opportunity, too, Mm -hmm. because the sort of mainstream, straight-up reporting newspapers like the Herald and the Times... They had reporters um, on the ground in Cuba who were covering the story probably much more accurately. But nobody was really covering the story from the from the rebels point of view. Right. Nobody was really telling the story from the, quote, underdog, which was a position that Hearst and Pulitzer were used to taking in their coverage back in New York of everyday exposés and crusades against the big man. Yeah, this was their angle from the beginning. Right. I mean, they had these correspondents in Cuba for well over a year before um, the main even got there. The only problem was most of these papers had reporters on the ground in Cuba, uh, but sometimes they were being fed stories like tall tales by the resistance, by the rebels, or sometimes, you know, in order to create a good story, certainly for the world and for the journal, they were simply fabricating stories. And as tensions were increasing with Spain, many reporters, especially those who made Spain look bad, got kicked out of Cuba and were relocated to Key West, where they continued to crank out stories, sometimes fictionalized stories, um, Mm. or stories that were just kind of based on rumors and hearsay. But from Cuba or from Key West, let's just say that the reports that were published in the world and the journal often we're lacking a certain amount of nuance, okay? As W.A. Swanberg wrote in his biography, Pulitzer, quote, in the Hearst Press, the typical Spaniard emerged as a monster of cruelty who raped Cuban women, tortured and murdered their husbands and children, then burned their houses. No room for nuance in the yellow journalism newspapers here, obviously. So Pulitzer jumped into the fray here as well, I guess. Yes, Hearst was first, but Pulitzer would get into really the same game, which surprised some, and I think is kind of like, it's the stuff of consternation for Pulitzer's biographers today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because how could this publisher, Pulitzer, you know, who prided himself in accuracy, even if he wrote stories that were like emotional and crusading, how could his paper end up publishing dispatches from Cuba that were actually fictionalized? Well, I mean, how could he? Well, he he had to. He had to compete with Hearst. Well, and then, you know, Hearst was going to any length, right, to create a story, sometimes inserting himself into the story, inserting the newspaper. One, just one example from August of 1897, he championed uh, the release of the teenage daughter of a Cuban insurgent, um, a young woman named Evangeline Cosio y Cisneros who was captive and also happened to be very lovely and perfect for a yellow journalism newspaper front page. So... Wait, she was a captured princess? Yes, Hearst referred to her as a princess, and she uh, she was indeed in a dungeon in Cuba when the U.S. government was slow in negotiating a release for this young woman. Hearst actually sent a reporter to Cuba, bribed a bunch of people, and then sprung her out of the dungeon, like a jailbreak. 
Like a jailbreak. Yeah, I mean, it's super breathtaking and exciting. And And illegal. Well, yeah, that too. Hurston put her up in the Waldorf Astoria, got her back up here to New York, basically kind of paraded her around. And of course, she was, you know, the talk of the town for several days. And of course, you know, all for the glory of the New York Journal. And meanwhile, he had sort of like fabricated or fictionalized her life. Oh, well, oh, we take that for granted because he was doing so much of this by this time with his news articles. He even went as far as taking her on the road and uh, heading down to, to Washington, D.C., where, where she met President McKinley. Yeah, there is an element of P.T. Barnum taking Tom Thumb on tour in this whole oh, thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, he's a, you know, he is a media manipulator in the same way that P.T. Barnum certainly is with a lot of humbug mixed in. Were there any prominent critics of what these two newspapers were doing? Oh, well, certainly all the other newspapers in town were complaining about, you know, these dubious reports that were being published. Um, It particularly ticked off one reporter from the New York Herald, a man named George Bronson Ray, who had been based in Cuba and was really respected for his accurate coverage. He went so far in 1897 to publish a 300-page expose, a book that was called Facts and Fakes About Cuba, which you can actually Google and read that um, for free online today. In the dedication, he states that the book is dedicated to the American press and those who try to root out truth despite the inventions of malicious and incompetent correspondents. And then in 300 pages, he debunks all of these stories that had been published by Hearst and by Pulitzer. And all this time, of course, the U.S. is not even officially engaged with Spain in any kind of a conflict yet. No, not officially. Although by writing, you know, daily about these alleged massacres of innocent Cuban civilians, about the miserable treatment of captured rebel fighters, especially women... These papers were tugging at the heartstrings of their readers, and they were taking up the the cause of liberation, and they were pleading with President Cleveland um, and then with President McKinley to do something. And I guess that's when the United States decided to send down this ship to Havana, right? The USS Maine. Yeah, well, by early 1898... Spain had actually offered Cuba self-governance, but not full independence. And that was not enough. It was an offer that was rejected by the rebels. And then rumors started to circulate that American commercial interests on the island could be targeted. So the U.S. battleship Maine, with more than 300 aboard, was sent down to Havana to really make a point that America would protect its own interests. And by the way, in return, Spain decided to make their own point by sending their their own battleship, the Vizcaya, up to New York Harbor. Which then brings us to the night of February 15th, 1898, when the Maine mysteriously exploded in Havana's harbor, killing at least 250 people on board. So given the kind of heightened nature of the reporting already in this engagement, you know, leading up to this event, I can Mm -hmm. only quiver in horror thinking about how the newspapers must have covered this terrible tragedy. Uh, I would, just to illustrate this point, like to compare how some of the papers treated this story. Given the limited information that was really known about it over the next two days, so remember, the, the explosion happened at night on the 15th. The New York Times was able to run the story the next morning, uh, although it was, it was cautious in its coverage. They wrote in the, in the front page article here, quote, The main blown up. Terrible explosion on board the USS battleship in Havana Harbor. Many persons killed and wounded. All the boats of the Spanish cruiser Alfonso Twelfth assisting in the work of relief. So a sober take on these events, and Mm -hmm. they even cared to mention that Spain was even helping in some of the recovery efforts. Oh, and as did the Tribune in in their coverage the next day, the headline on the front page, Maine blown up at Havana at the top of the page, and then Spanish cruiser aids in rescuing survivors. 
Captain Sigsby, in reporting the disaster to the Navy Department, advises Americans to withhold judgment till the facts are ascertained. Cause of the catastrophe, not yet known. So then, <laughs> um, in comparison, I suspect that the World and Journal treated this quite differently. Yet yeah, the weird thing is that Pulitzer's World missed the story in the morning edition. I mean, it had happened late at night. The top story that they went with instead are about a, a stage-struck young man in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who shot himself in a theater when the actress at whom he had thrown a bouquet of flowers had kicked them to the side. So, so perhaps a less urgent story than was running on the other morning papers on that day. Slightly less important in terms of, you know, the international relations and such. However, they did carry a story on page three about the Spanish ship Vizcaya, which was arriving in New York, and they went into horrific detail about how it could actually bombard and, quote, demolish the greater part of greater New York in two hours. So they were, they were sort of scaring up fears. Fear-mongering. What, yes, what the Spanish ship was about to do. But they missed the big story. Although they made up for it uh, the next day, the entire front page of the world on February 17th was dedicated to a dramatic, breathless retelling of the explosion, going into grisly detail here um, under the, the massive headline, Main Explosion Caused by Bomb or Torpedo? Question mark. The world has sent a special tug with submarine divers to Havana to find out. Um, and then, of course, there's a, almost an entire full-page illustration of the explosion and their flames and bodies flying. And I'm sure Hearst followed suit. Yo, he wasn't going to be outdone. That same day, on February 17th, the front page of Hearst Journal screamed, Torpedo hole discovered by government divers in the main. Startling evidence of Spanish treachery revealed. And then he went even further, advertising in the bottom corner of the front page a $50,000 cash reward for information that leads to the capture of whoever was responsible for the explosion. Paid for, of course, by the journal. And just to be clear here, no torpedo hole was ever actually discovered on what remained of the main. No, the American investigation two years later ruled that some sort of external explosion, possibly from a mine, had caused it. Although then that was disputed and debated by officers at the time, and also by later investigators who believed that the explosion was triggered by some sort of spontaneous fire down in its coal storage bunker. But either way, no, this was not caused by a torpedo. But to be crystal clear here, the world and the journal were both pinpointing Spain as the culprit of this attack, this terror attack. That's right. To quote from a Pulitzer biographer, James McGrath Morris, President McKinley begged the public to be patient while experts worked to determine the cause of the explosion. In the din, no one heard his pleas, especially on Park Row, where the disaster released a pent-up war fever. The Cuban struggle, a dramatic and poignant fight for liberty so close to the American coast, was a story made for the newspapers. And so basically, this just allowed the newspapers to use this war to sell as many newspapers as possible. Tom, let me describe a couple front pages that I looked at uh, from the New York Journal from between February and April here. Okay, they were loaded with drama, each page with vivid illustrations. Um, they had even, in the banner of the newspaper, they had a little subhead that said, an American paper for the American people. Mm. Just as an example, the March 15th issue featured a terrible racist illustration of a Spaniard wearing a necklace of skeletons and smoking a skull pipe under the headline, Here He Is, Look at Him. This was a photograph or this was an illustration? Illustrations. These are all illustrations at this time. Uh -huh. um, on March 22nd, using Hearst using his tried and true method of pretty women 
He is an illustration of women surrounding this gigantic warship under the headline, New Battleship Kentucky and Kearsarge, and the women who will christen them. So now he's even injecting this story with sex appeal. Yeah. And they just keep pounding the war drums. It just seems that war is inevitable. And indeed, by late April then, President McKinley and the U.S. Congress declared that the U.S. was at war with Spain. Now, this would be a conflict that would last a little over three months and would involve conflicts in both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and would even lead to Spain ceding possession of the Philippines over to the United States. This was a summer of war for the United States. And there was no bigger cheerleader and promoter of this war than William Randolph Hearst. With his journal, and of course, with Pulitzer's World and other newspapers kind of following a lead, they published breathless melodramatic accounts each day of actions in the Caribbean theater of war here. Articles that took rumors and shreds of half-heard reports and turned them into front-page articles, often accompanied by almost half-page illustrations. So would you go so far as to suggest that these papers and the yellow journalism here really created this war? I mean, that's kind of what I remember from high school history, if I'm remembering this correctly. Would there have been a war without these papers? Oh, absolutely. Of course. I mean, Hearst wishes he could have been as powerful to be that influential um, on the mind of a president and a Congress, right? I mean, when we, I think when we learn about this conflict in school, it's very often paired with these two newspaper publishers um, as a sort of essential component of the story. But in fact, the war probably would have played out exactly as it did that summer with or without these newspapers. It's not that Hearst caused the war, it's that he latched himself on to the war. To quote from uh, his biographer, David Nassau, quote, that Hearst has received so large a measure of credit or blame for that, quote, glorious war is a tribute to his genius as a self-promoter. It was Hearst who proclaimed the war in Cuba to be the New York Journal's war. And he would convince the rest of the nation that without the Hearst press leading the way, there would have been no war. So Hearst then is sort of branding the war as a Hearst war, as a journal mm-hmm. war. Was was Pulitzer pulling any of these same tricks? He was. I mean, they were definitely trying to keep up, but it was it was really impossible. You know, as we said um, in our first show... Hearst had a huge fortune, which he could use to kind of play off of. And granted, he was also in in lots of debts. And as I said, also, that fortune was really controlled by his mother, Phoebe Apperson. But the journal was soon outselling every single newspaper, at one point printing over one million copy of the morning and evening editions. Obviously keeping those newsies very busy out on the street. The world was struggling in such a way that they actually began copying stories that were published in the journal. Or in, I guess, what they really did was report on the reporting. It -hmm. wouldn't be just sort of outright plagiarism, but it would really just be like, they did the reporting and we're going to write about the reporting. Which is, to be fair, something that still happens today. Newspapers quoting other news sources when reporting a story. (laughs) It got so bad, in fact, Tom, that Hearst tricked Pulitzer into publishing phony articles. Oh, that's not good. Let's just say this is the most egregious example in Hearstery. Oh, (laughs) thank you, Mama Roo. (laughs) In one edition of the New York Journal reported on the death of an Austrian artilleryman named Reflippe W. Thenuz. The world copied that news story, right, and ran it in the very next edition. And who was Fanuz? I didn't... He was a fake. The The whole story was a fake. In fact, the next day, the journal revealed that Reflippe W. Fanuz 
was an anagram for we pilfer the news. <laughs> That's what you call a gotcha, which is pretty funny, except that both of these papers published a story that was fake. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people read it thinking it was real. Yeah. But these kind of shenanigans, even though like highly unethical, made for a wonderful business, even for Pulitzer for, for a time, actually. But he just could not match Hearst's resources. Hearst even funded yachts that sent reporters and photographers down to the warfront from New York. He even wrote President McKinley and offered to privately fund a cavalry regiment. And he was even prepared to arm his own yachts, you know, with munitions and create a naval blockade against the Spanish. So he's not just reporting, he's also like trying to get himself in the war. It's like he wants to fight in the war himself. He wants to be in the middle of the war, right? I mean, it is dangerous, it also annoyed his mother, as you could imagine, all this money going into this. It must have been exhausting just signing all those checks. <laughs> um, he did actually man a yacht himself in mid-June of 1898, becoming, in essence, his own war correspondent. Which is kind of like if Wolf Blitzer, like, went to war, you know, was like reporting yeah. <laughs> uh, from the front line. Um, although, I guess, remember, there was that, what was that guy's name? The Scud Stud? <laughs> I think his name is Arthur Kent, the Scud Stud. Who earned the nickname during the Persian Gulf War. But rewinding 100 years before the Scud Stud to Hearst, <laughs> did, he, did he end up, I don't know, making a fool out of himself? Well, I mean, he obviously shouldn't have been there. He was sticking his nose, and he was kind of creating a disruption where it didn't need to be. But he did manage to rescue some 29 Spanish soldiers who had jumped overboard from a burning armada. Armada. Hearst was in the region for almost a month as the war was actually winding down in late July. He even wired his mother the message, quote, don't worry, everything is over here now, and we're coming home. And then by August, this war was effectively over, and America left Cuba, and Spain relinquished its authority over the country of Puerto Rico, which then became the territorial possession of the United States. But while this war might have been over, another war was brewing, a conflict between these two newspapers and the children who sold them in the streets of New York. We'll get to the newsies and the rest of the story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, 
a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So the Spanish-American War is over by the fall of 1898. So what changes were made at these newspapers after the war? Well, one thing that definitely changed at the newspapers was their circulation because readership tumbled dramatically. Imagine how readers during the war had been buying multiple editions of the same paper during the day, you know, Mm -hmm. just to keep up with the changing developments and battles because that was the only way to get an update on the news. It was like the news was happening so quickly that even these various editions during the day were not fast enough. So they'd come out with more editions. They both had multiple editions during the day to keep readers informed and to sell more papers. And now that it was all over, there was less to stay on top of. Well, on the other hand, of course, their expenses went down. For instance, you know, Hearst didn't have to pay for any more yachts. (laughs) to go down to Cuba. But I think that must have inspired them to drum up similar sorts of exaggerated stories sort of in New York City. You didn't need to leave the city to come up with a a fake story. You didn't need a war. Um, Maybe Hearst could drum up his own fake stories that way. Uh, But it seemed that Pulitzer was perhaps a little embarrassed by what had happened to his paper. I think that he recognized that that his paper had actually strayed far from his mandate for absolute accuracy uh, that he had instilled in his reporters since the very beginning. According to the, the Swanberg biography, after the war, Pulitzer called the world's executives up to his mansion on West 55th Street and he explained that the paper needed to double down on accuracy and factual reporting. And then these bosses called a mandatory meeting for the entire newsroom on November 28, 1898, where they reiterated this message. One editor, a man named Don Seitz, explained to the group, quote, There is and has been for two years, as you know, a fierce competition This has developed a tendency to rush things. It has not been to the advantage of any newspaper so doing. The world feels that it is time for the staff to learn definitely and finally that it must be a normal newspaper. (laughs) A a normal newspaper? Yeah. A boring newspaper? (laughs) Pretty much saying, guys, cut it out. Enough with the fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, before we get to Pulitzer and Hearst in the 20th century here, we have to spend a moment talking about, of course, one of our favorite stories of New York City history and one that we covered in a podcast many years ago. You can actually look it up, episode 219. That episode is called Newsies on Strike, the Newsboy Strike of 1899. And to summarize... At the time, newspapers had been sold at newsstands, of course, but also they were sold by young newspaper hawkers on the street, usually boys who would stand at corners, uh, they would cluster around train stations, and these young men were lovingly referred to as newsies. 
And the business relationship worked like this. These boys would buy a stack of newspapers at half price and then sell them at full price and keep the profit. So these two papers, the World and the Journal, by this point were both selling for a penny. So the boys would buy a stack of 100 papers for 50 cents. And then they would do their best to sell the whole stack and make 50 cents a profit. And, you know, this could be really challenging because you would essentially have to be there on your street corner, you know, as late as you needed to be to get them all sold. And of course, what made it especially challenging are these newspapers that had multiple editions during a day. Yeah, you might find yourself trying to hawk old news and you couldn't return the newspapers for a refund. Well, during the war, the demand, of course, for the newspapers had surged, as had the cost of putting out the paper. So the paper raised the cost to the boys. So for their stack of 100 newspapers, the boys were now being charged 60 cents instead of 50, which was annoying at the time, you know, but they sold so many papers during the war that it didn't really matter. However, after the war, when the demand for the newspapers plummeted, other newspapers lowered their costs back down to the pre-war levels, but not the world and not the journal. They kept their price at 60 cents per hundred. Which I must say, and it just continues to strike me every time I hear this story, that this is just really rotten of these publishers because they're essentially robbing children. Yeah, and the neediest children, too. Mm-hmm. And so these children fought back and they organized themselves and they went on strike for a few weeks during the summer of 1899, causing the daily circulation of both of these papers to fall pretty dramatically. And you can hear much more of this story back in episode 219. But in the end, the two papers didn't end up lowering their cost to the newsies back down to 50 cents, but they did institute a policy of buying back the unsold newspapers, which was seen as a big win for the newsies. All of which is to say that that juicy story was the inspiration for the 1992 Disney film Newsies, starring a young Christian Bale in the lead. (laughs) Um, And of course, the hit Broadway musical, also called Newsies, which opened in 2012. And in which... You can see Joseph Pulitzer sing and dance. Slip my throat. It's the simplest solutions that bolster the bottom line. I've got it. If we charge the newsies 60 cents per hundred instead of 50, they'd have to sell 10 more papers just to earn the same amount as always. My thought exactly. It's genius. It's going to be awfully rough on those children. They will be learning a real life lesson in economics. I couldn't offer them a better education if they were my own. But what this story reinforces is just how costly it was to produce a newspaper during this time, right? And Hearst, as you mentioned, was burning through cash. He had even reached out to Pulitzer before, just before the war in 1897 to see if the two could, you know, somehow reach a, a sort of gentleman's agreement about raising their prices to two cents together, um, as that would obviously be in both of their interests. Ooh, an inside deal. So then did Pulitzer agree? No. He he took that as a sign that Hearst was actually going broke. Maybe his mother had stopped signing checks over. Mm -hmm. So he decided, Pulitzer decided not to budge on the penny price. And then here... Two years later, after a very costly war for both of them to cover, circulation and revenues were tumbling after the war. The children fought back. uh, And Pulitzer here was, was finally putting his paper back on a more respectable track. And so beginning of the 20th century, the world now has a new look, or rather maybe an old look. And that was a look of respectability. Yeah, he kind of took it back to its roots. I mean, he was still crusading... But uh, he was now crusading against what he saw as, you know, things like unfair practices in the insurance industry. He was campaigning for antitrust legislation, uh, which put him at odds with, you know, many of New York's most powerful men. And then in 1909, 
his paper exposed a massive $40 million illegal payment that had been made by the U.S. government to the Panama Canal Company, uh, for which the U.S. government sued him, sued Pulitzer for libel, and then lost Mm. in court in a milestone victory for the freedom of the press. But from what I understand... Even in our first part, like Pulitzer's health was deteriorating Mm -hmm. and it got worse, you know, during the Spanish-American War era. So by the 20th century here, was he even going into his office here in New York? He hadn't regularly been going into his office for years, um, even during the war. He spent most of his time in kind of isolation in his lavish residence in Midtown on 55th Street or up in Bar Harbor, Maine, or down on Jekyll Island in Georgia, or in some, you know, glamorous suite in a hotel in Paris, always traveling with, you know, an entourage of doctors and specialists and secretaries who would read him mail. But he was incredibly sensitive to noise, and he had pretty much lost his eyesight. So he was in terrible shape, which had him really thinking about what would become of his fortune, you know, and, mm-hmm. and also of his name. He had been speaking with Columbia University for years about funding a school of journalism. But in the 1890s, they weren't really interested. Although by 1902, President Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia was more open to the idea of a a school that would be uh, used just to train journalists. Mm -hmm. Pulitzer published a piece in the journal, The North American Review, about why the nation needed a school to train journalists. He wrote, our republic and its press will rise or fall together. An able, disinterested, public-spirited press with trained intelligence to know the right and courage to do it can preserve the public virtue without which popular government is a sham and a mockery. A cynical, mercenary, demagogic press will produce in time a people as base as itself. The power to mold the future of the Republic will be in the hands of the journalists of future generations. On October 29, 1911, while traveling aboard his private yacht down to Jekyll Island, Pulitzer fell seriously ill and the yacht docked at Charleston, South Carolina, where Joseph Pulitzer died at 64 years old. The next year, in 1912, the Columbia School of Journalism was founded with a $2 million gift from Pulitzer. And that first year, in 1912, 79 students were enrolled, including 12 women. Five years later, in 1917, the school awarded its first Pulitzer Prizes for excellence in journalism. William Randolph Hearst would live four more decades And his story here in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, here in the dawn of the 20th century, would, of course, be very, very different from the direction of Pulitzer's. For instance, you know, as Hearst's publishing empire grew, he was able to pursue other ambitions, namely political ambitions, Which is, again, one of the similarities between the two men. Remember, Pulitzer served in Congress for a couple months. Yeah. Well, Hearst did him one better, or rather two terms better. Two terms in the United States House of Representatives, elected in 1902 and then again in 1904. Thanks, of course, to ties at this point with the Democratic machine Tammany Hall. Now, with this sort of entryway seat into federal government, though... He was thinking much larger. He immediately wanted to run for president of the United States in 1904. What? A media man running for president? <laughs> mm-hmm. Did he think that his profile was high enough to command that sort of position? Well, you know, it, it certainly wasn't. And he may not have thought so, but this is where his newspapers could be used to create the illusion of a high profile and the illusion of a campaign. To quote from Nassau's biography on Hearst, quote, the Hearst campaign started off as little more than a construct of the Hearst newspapers, but the more it was reported on, the more substance it acquired. 
Throughout the summer and fall of 1903, the Hearst papers created the appearance of groundswell of enthusiasm for the Hearst candidacy, transforming random remarks and consequential gestures and simple hospitality into expressions of enthusiastic support. Unquote. So he reported on and even exaggerated and fictionalized his own support. In his newspaper. Yes. Uh-huh. Brilliant. I think I'm, we might have just given Mark Zuckerberg a great idea to run um, in case he wants to run. Well, Ew. Well, ultimately, he wasn't even chosen by his party. And, you know, he became disillusioned with the power structure and corruption of Tammany Hall. So as a result, he kept pursuing other elected offices, but as more of an outsider, as a candidate for third parties or fusion parties. Other elected offices? How did, how did he do? When, when, when were these elections? Well, so he ran for mayor of New York in 1905 against George McClellan Jr., oh. and he lost. Um, he ran for governor in 1906 against Charles Evans Hughes, and he lost. Um, he ran again for mayor of New York in 1909 against William J. Gaynor, and he lost. (laughs) And then he ran again for lieutenant governor in 1910, and guess what, Tom? He won? (laughs) (laughs) No, he lost. Well, did he at least promise to throw all of his resources behind whichever Democratic candidate would eventually be chosen? (laughs) No, actually, he did not. (laughs) He did not do that. But now it just seems like he's a politician. Was he still active in his newspaper? Oh, Tom, not only was he active, he kept acquiring other publications during this whole time that he was running for all these different offices. So um, he acquired Cosmopolitan magazine in 1905, Good Housekeeping in 1911, and Harper's Bazaar in 1913 and you know many many more magazines and different kinds of newspapers throughout the country throughout his whole life okay at great expense often putting putting himself in great debt despite even that fact which maybe someone would like ease up on their spending no not Hearst, he kept spending tons of money his own money then of course his family money Which, at this point, was still being controlled by his mother, Phoebe? Yes, until 1919, uh, when she died of influenza during the Spanish flu pandemic. Which means that then, into the 1920s, Hearst now had his entire family fortune, plus his own money? Yes, um, he also, by this time, had a wife, a former chorus girl named Millicent Wilson, and five sons. He not only kept a lavish home for his family on the Upper West Side in an apartment complex uh, called the Clarendon um, over on Riverside Drive, which is an interesting place to be living mm-hmm. in the night, you know, a hundred years ago, I think. With five sons? With five sons. But he also was living out in California. He began, in fact, to develop in 1919, began to develop um, his absolutely sumptuous home, um, which he called San Simeon, and today we know better as the Hearst Castle. An extraordinary place to visit. Oh, it's beautiful. But to be clear, in New York, he was living on the Upper West Side. Uh, Yeah, interestingly enough, he rented his apartment at first, but then eventually bought his entire building and then, of course, renovated the penthouse, the the floors at the top, uh, into this beautiful place to live. Hearst, of course, is also known for his lavish art collection, which filled not only the hallways of all of his homes here, but warehouses and empty spaces throughout New York City, including a five-story warehouse in the Bronx, filled with his art possessions. And by the 1920s, Hearst was even dabbling in the movies. 
Oh, yeah, Tom. By this time, he even owned his own film company. You know, this was very exciting. He was really interested in the newsreels, obviously, because of that connection with the newspapers. But he outright owned a film company, built a film studio um, in East Harlem, which was called Cosmopolitan Productions. So kind of like a an arm of the magazine. Oh. Um, which that film company operated in New York from 1918 to 1923, then of course went out to Hollywood. One of its biggest stars was a young, young actress named Marion Davies, who starred in over two dozen pictures here on Cosmopolitan. And Marion Davies was famously known as William Randolph Hearst's young mistress. Uh, yeah, and I mean, they were quite public, um, which was, of, of course, quite shocking, but really befitting of Hearst's outsider status and persona here. Hearst and his wife, Millicent, essentially lived separate lives. I mean, they had there are all these homes now. They stayed together officially for the family and for the public face. Millicent was actually well known for getting involved with charitable causes. Like, she has her own story, which is very interesting. And meanwhile, Marion Davies would, of course, head out to Hollywood and, you know, try to crack into the movie business there and would live with Hearst at San Simeon. Wow. So so Hearst's life here is a whirlwind of activity that is now taking place far from the journal's old offices down on Newspaper Row. And I would say, I mean, they weren't the happiest years um, for Hearst, although he was, you know, living uh, with Marion Davies till the end of his life here. But he spent the final years in debt, and his reputation was severely damaged, especially during the 1930s, because, I mean, I'm not, not going to go down this rabbit hole because it's, it's very involved, but essentially he became very anti-FDR and very anti-New Deal, during the Great Depression, he was on the other side of this. He, he ended up being mm. very conservative. The New Deal, of course, being that financial program that Roosevelt developed to help bail out the United States. Which is kind of surprising given that Hearst had been running as a Democrat. Well, so yeah, I mean, he has this kind of philosophy shift throughout his life. That philosophy, of course, seeps down into all the publications that he's running. And that tone would eventually damage the circulation of his newspapers. Well, that and then obviously there was another little thing that came along here in 1941 that could have also perhaps inflicted a little damage on Hearst's reputation. And that, of course, would be the Orson Welles film Citizen Kane. Oh, yes. The RKO film, Citizen Kane, which officially opened, you'll love this, Tom, at the Palace Theater oh. um, on May 1st of 1941 is where its big splashy opening was, which is interesting. Um, now, this was, of course, based loosely on Hearst, although it was actually based on several other people as well. But are you suggesting that Hearst didn't actually have a sled? Oh, Tom, I'm sure he had hundreds of sleds, but probably not a sled named Rosebud. Rosebud. The character of Charles Foster Kane dies at the end of Citizen Kane. Sorry to spoil. Spoiler! It's, it's, Spoiler. A, it's, it's an old movie, okay? The real Hearst would go on to live another decade, and he died in Beverly Hills at age 88 on August 14th, 1951. Now, there are a, a couple places in New York where the, the story of Hearst uh, lives on. Of course, one of them, obviously, uh, is the home of the Hearst Media Empire, which still operates out of their glorious office in Midtown West at 57th Street and 8th Avenue. Now, this is a really interesting building, Tom. It's, it's I think, mm -hmm. one of the most interesting buildings in Midtown, honestly, because... Its original stone-facing structure was constructed in 1928, and they meant it was meant to be a base of a very large skyscraper, but it was postponed because of the Great Depression. Mm. Finally, though, in 2006, okay, so many, many decades later, they did end up building that skyscraper, this very glamorous geometric glass tower that finally, you know, completes the building here. And of course, that today is known as Hearst Tower. And Hearst Tower is located just, uh, what, two blocks 
south of Columbus Circle in, and the sort of southwest corner of Central Park. Yes, and actually on that corner, you'll find our other um, notable uh, Hearst landmark. Piece of Hearstery. Our piece of Hearstery here. And that is the main monument, which is the New York tribute to the destruction of the USS Maine and to those American soldiers who lost their lives here. Now, in another little bit of emulating Pulitzer, I have to say, I mean, even at, you know, throughout their whole lives there are all these interesting parallels, but Hearst through his newspapers almost immediately after the destruction of the Maine began pleading with the American people to raise funds for a monument, inspiring dozens of different fundraisers across the country. Now, I'm not even sure how much of those proceeds overall ended up funding this monument as it took like over a decade uh, for the money to be raised, but it was finally dedicated on Memorial Day of 1913 in a ceremony featuring William Randolph Hearst standing next to Mayor William J. Gaynor, who had defeated Hearst in that mayoral election. (laughs) Yeah, so they were, you know, they were a little bit chippy with one another, let's just say. They were frenemies. Yes. (laughs) Meanwhile, if you would just walk to the southeast corner of Central Park to Grand Army Plaza, you could visit Pulitzer today, just across the street from the Plaza Hotel there, uh, where he bequeathed $50,000 for the installation of a public fountain, today called the Pulitzer Fountain. Uh, This is a fountain which was completed in 1916. It was designed by the architect Thomas Hastings, and it's topped with a statue by Carl Bitter, a statue of Pomona, the Roman goddess of abundance. Hmm. And isn't it interesting, this, this, again, another parallel that they would both sponsor these grand monuments on either corner of the south side of Central Park? Parallel till the end. Meanwhile, of course, if you head up to 116th Street and Broadway, you can visit the Columbia School of Journalism, a school which still, every year, awards its prizes for excellence in journalism, called, of course, the Pulitzer Prize. But Greg, one way that you cannot visit Pulitzer and Hearst today is by (laughs) reading The World or The Journal. Are you saying that you can't go up to a small child on the street and purchase a world or a journal from them? No, both publications have gone the way of the newsy, but what happened to the newspapers? Well, so the New York World would merge with the New York Telegram in 1931 to -hmm. become the New York World Telegram. And then Mm -hmm. in the 1950s, it merged with the New York Sun to become the New York World Telegram and Sun. Getting kind of wordy. Yeah. Yes. Well, meanwhile, the New York Journal survived into the 20th, well, into the 20th century here as well, via a merger with the New York American, thus becoming the New York Journal American. Getting us up to the 1960s, when by this point, you know, at the start of the decade, New York had a lot of daily papers, but great many of them were dying off due to, of course, the advent of... TV news. Yes. So because of this, newspapers began to merge again in order to survive. So in September of 1966, the New York Journal American merged with the New York World Telegram and Sun. (gasps) Wait. So the newspapers started by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer finally became one? Yes. The New York World Telegram and son. <laughs> in another merger um, with the Herald Tribune then, for a short time, this becomes the New York World Journal Tribune um, in the summer of 1966. But this only lasts a few months until May 5th of 1967, closing this newspaper for good, leaving New York with the same daily English language newspapers that we have today, the New York Times, the New York Post, the New York Daily News, and Newsday. For more on the story, and for screenshots of front pages, headlines that scream, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. 
Again, we'd like to thank everyone who supports us over on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, um, where for just a small donation a month, you really help keep our show running, you know, during this absolutely crazy time. We're an independently produced show, so this is our chief way of uh, keep keeping the show running. So we are absolutely grateful for all of those um, who support us on Patreon. Yes, unfortunately, we don't have Mrs. Hurst to write checks to us. Um, no, no Phoebe. No Phoebe, which is why we're also not chartering yachts to head down to Cuba. But we do have you. We do have our patrons who have joined us at P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. We thank you by offering special patron-only podcasts. We have the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we talk through movies that have been shot on location in New York City and we encourage you to watch those with us and we also have the Bowery Boys Takeout. And we will have a short takeout um, tied into this this episode which will be going live this weekend um, with a little extra information and an exciting new project that I'm working on regarding Hearst. So we'll save all those details for the takeout. In addition, we want to give a very special thank you uh, to the following new patrons. Susan G. and Hannah R. from Manhattan, Jamie D. from the Bronx, James S., Ashley R., and MJR from Brooklyn, Julie R. from Long Island, Rich S. from New Jersey, John B. from Virginia, and Shira A. from Georgia. Thank you all very much for your support. So thank you so much for flipping through the pages with us of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.